Water is crucial to sustain life, food, ecosystems, human health and well-being. Still, millions of poor and marginalised women and men around the world face challenges in accessing water due to a range of ecological, social, political, institutional and economic reasons. The focus of this month's episode of Between the Lines is a new book called Water for Food Security, Nutrition and Social Justice. IDS researcher Lydia Cabral interviews two of its authors, Lila Mehta and Claudia Ringler, who is Deputy Director of Environment and Production Technology Division at the International Food Policy Research Institute, or IFPRI. They argue for the need to improve policy coherence across water, land and food, and make the case for strengthening the relationship between the human rights to water and food, especially for marginalised women and men. Good afternoon. My name is Lydia Cabral. I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies, where I currently co-convene a new master's degree in food and development. And it's really exciting to see a new book that uh, connects to uh, issues within the um, food domain from a water perspective and bringing in new aspects about water and the need to consider water in food that we haven't so far paid enough attention to. And it's very good to be in the company of... uh, my colleague Lila Meta uh, from IDS and uh, Claudia Ringler from uh, IFPRI, both authors of this new book. So um, I wanted to hear from you why this book now, what's the rationale behind uh, producing this book at this point in time? So there's a lot of talk about the water crisis, the food crisis. And rarely do we bring water and food together. I think a key issue that we want to highlight in this book is that water is life. Water is critical for life. But without water, there can be no food. And these linkages are not really made very often um, at high-level policy dialogues. The legal systems, the policies, they're all very, very separated out. And what we've tried to do, I think we, I would like to believe that this is like the first comprehensive effort to bring together water, food security and nutrition together in a comprehensive way uh, beyond just the focus on agriculture and irrigation. So we're looking at questions of nutrition, health, we're making micro-macro linkages and also we're going from local to global. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, problems around accessing water, around um food crisis, especially given the context of uncertainties due to climate change. And we focus on a lot of these challenges in terms of accessing water for food. So climate change, drivers of change, uh, privatization, uh, land and water grabs, etc. And so these are things that we problematize. Yeah. And maybe to add, you might see that social justice is in the title of the book. And the reason is that we have seen that while there are now a lot of legal documents, there are the sustainable development goals. So there are a lot of efforts at the global level to improve on water security and food security. But the way these these global systems operate, they don't have a pro-poor focus. So 
if a country says, yes, I'm, you know, trying to improve on my social develop um, sustainable development goals, so they might try to improve water access in urban areas because it can be done at a lower cost. There's no one out there that will say, you know, you should first try to improve water and food security for those who are mo most marginalized, for the poorest, that mi who might live in remote areas, might be underrepresented. Um, ethnic groups, etc. So there's a real problem there if we just go down in a business as usual fashion, particularly as Lila said, with climate change, droughts, floods, those affect the marginalized the most. And if we don't have to actually target them for improvements in these areas, the situation will worsen a lot more going forward. So we've both talked about climate change and uh, the extent of a water crisis. At this moment in time, can you tell us, is there enough water for us to ensure a food uh, secure and uh, nutritious, secure population around the globe? That's an interesting question. And, you know, there are a lot of discourses around it. Um, and it really depends on how you, you know, from what angle you take this question. In general, globally, we do have enough water and enough food on average to um, to make sure that every person can lead a healthy uh, and productive life. So that those are the basic numbers, but we have huge inequities. And with climate change, those inequities are increasing. So there are floods in the UK, for example, but who in the UK will take five years to recover from these floods? But if we now go to a low-income developing country, somewhere in Eastern Africa, where they also have had floods recently, and before they had a very severe drought, you know, a lot of the people there will take at least five years to recover in terms of income and food security levels to the level they they had before before their crisis. So well, where everyone in the globe experiences growing impacts from climate change, adverse impacts, the actual experience at the personal level, um, at the income level, food security level, and also long term, you know, uh, livelihood and earning capacity level are so much stronger. Um, in those low-income contexts. And that's where we are just not yet focusing enough on. And that's where we have to do much more about. I've been working on the politics of water scarcity for a very long time. And I think a big part of what I've been doing is to challenge this idea that you know, we are running out of water. So while there is a water crisis all the time, people are excluded from water. It's very important to ask questions about um, you know, who has access to water? Why? Why not? Who is being excluded? And it's it's true that at the global level, you know, you can get very lost in the statistics and the figures, but often the focus is on the physical and the volumetric aspects of water and not really looking at the distribution, the variation. And of course, climate change is causing a lot of uncertainty. Um, it's very difficult. It's going to affect water availability. Um, there's going to be increase of temperature. There's going to be extreme rainfall. There's more extreme events. But who is affected by that um, and why? And we've got to really look at the local level impacts is, is really, really important. Um, so I guess in this book, what we're trying to do is we're trying to also challenge this productionist narrative that we're running out of water and food. Uh, we believe that there's enough water and food to go around. But of course, questions of distribution, questions of access, questions of mismanagement, of policy coherence is really important. We're questioning some of these conventional framings of the crisis. Uh, we want to look at some of the metrics, some of the statistics that are, and as Claudia said, you know, often the poorest, the marginalized, their perspectives are, are missed out. 
There's plenty of statistics that tell us about the range of the crisis. You know, now with the SDGs and the new measurements around water, we're talking about over 4 billion people that lack access to safe sanitation and 2.1 billion that lack access to safe water. For me, that in the 21st century is a huge crime, you know, that you're talking about millions and billions that lack access to water and this affects their ability to lead healthy and productive lives. This affects their ability to have access to food, uh, to, to deal with undernourishment. We're talking about 822 million that are undernourished and people that are, uh, you know, don't have nutrients. We're talking about obesity and starvation at the same time in different parts of the globe. And all that is because of a mismanagement of water and food. I was really surprised to hear um, how, how, how long it took for the United Nations to recognize water as a, as a right, as a human right. Why do you, th especially if you compare it to, uh, to food that has been recognized as a human right for much longer, um, why do you think it has taken so long for uh, this recognition to actually happen? Well, water is a very contested resource. So water is obviously culturally, spiritually, it means a lot. Since 1992, it's been declared as an economic good. And there's been a lot of resistance to that because a lot of people believe it should be a fundamental human right. It took a long time for water to be recognized as a fundamental human right. And that has surprised a lot of people because... Um, it's so obvious, you know, you need water to live, you need water for food, you need water to for a healthy life. Maybe they didn't realize this and they just took it for granted in 1948, but still it was a long battle. At the turn of the century, there were lots of raging debates about privatization. A lot of powerful actors resisted this idea of water as a human right because it was implied that then it would have to be provided for free. In reality, no human right is actually provided for free. Water and food, you know, that's not the case. Um, firstly, they're progressively realized, but obviously there are certain principles, equity, uh, non-discrimination, empowerment, addressing exclusion. So these are things that states have to do. They have to respect, they have to protect, they have to try and fulfill and progressively realize these rights. Um, another reason why there's been a lot of resistance is probably the transboundary element that states can claim rights of, on other states. Um, it's very telling that initially, Uh, when the general comment 2002 came out and when finally water was recognized as a human right in 2010, several powerful nations in the global north did not recognize the right. The, the UK didn't. Now it does. But Canada and the United States still do not recognize the human right to water. So what does it mean in practice? What does the right to water mean? Yeah, so as Lila just said, it, you know, another factor um, that makes it difficult or has made it difficult for some governments to accept a human right to water is that once they sign up to a human right um, to water, you, know, you can go to court and you can at least try to claim uh, that governments have to fulfill that right. And what that could mean is that, you know, if you have a river flowing um, for example, from a water-rich country to a you know, water-scarce or water-poorer country, that the water-poor country could then make a claim to the water-rich, richer country and just say, you know, you can very easily fulfill the human right to water for your citizens. As you can see, I can't. And as you have signed up to the human right and I have signed up, 
you, know, you will have to release more water uh, to the citizens of my country. So there's definitely inter potential international implications um, to the human right to water. And given that situation, there has been a lot of reluctance um, for some governments to sign up. Can you now expand a little bit on the, uh, the notion of right to water and what it means in practice? So in 2010, access to clean water and sanitation were recognized by the General Assembly as a human right. And uh, it was affirmed that the right to water and sanitation were derived from a right to an adequate standard of living contained in several international human rights and treaties and justiciable. Um, as I said, it's been very controversial because um, what does this mean in practice? The human right to water is largely focused on domestic realms. So it's been about, so some countries have had provisions on recognizing it. South Africa was one of the first countries. It went against the grain and it had a free basic water policy and it provided in those days everybody 25 liters for free. Uh, but what often happened in practice was that these 25 liters was, were not really enough and uh, especially single-headed households and several households found it wasn't enough to to, to meet their productive needs. And that's why the right to water has been criticized because it's very focused very much on the domestic. It can't be used uh, to countervail processes of let's say water grabbing, land grabbing. It doesn't look at the productive elements. But for people who are actually uh, leading lives in rural areas, they don't separate out the domestic and productive elements of water. Uh, they don't separate out what they need for, for food from what they need for drinking. So in that sense, it's really important to bring these elements together. And in the book, we've made a case for really seriously bringing together the right to water and the right to food together, exploring them, creating more synergies, and even advocating maybe a right to water for livelihood purposes or for uh, food security and nutrition. Some countries have got a more expansive view of the right to water. They look at the right to water in terms of livelihoods, in terms of subsistence, in terms of productive uses. And it would be great if, you know, that could be pushed further. You make quite a strong point in the book about exploring the synergies then between the right to food and the right mm -hmm. to water. But you also recognize the difficulties in terms of um, governance, in terms of the politics of food and the politics of water, bringing those together. Mm -hmm. So where do we think, uh, where do you think we stand at the moment in terms of advancing in exploring these synergies? Um, you know, I think as climate change proceeds, as we see more regional and local water shortages as a result of climate change, climate change affecting conflict, conflict you know, affecting uh, deprivation, uh, more food security challenges. I think we'll see a growing realization um, that for securing livelihoods at risk from both water um, and food shortages, the, and looking at what those livelihoods are about, and a lot of them are small farmers, you know, who might farm um, half a hectare or often much less, and they farm that to send their children to school, uh, to sell maybe some of the crops, you know, for to really buy um, some health, basic health services, basic medicine, or to pay the school fees, and obviously for subsistence as well. So I think there will be an increasing realization over time, you know, that these communities are increasingly hit by shocks, 
climate shocks, but also obviously other uh, food price shocks that are linked to the climate shocks. And so that maybe there will be eventually a realization that a stronger linkage between the, their existing, the existing right to food of these communities, and in some countries, the existing right to water of these communities, that it has to go further um, beyond make, you know, beyond their claim to having access to water just for drinking, because they can't survive on that. Um, they can't, they can't build a livelihood just based on being able to drink water. Um, if if we don't do this, and if we are not moving in this direction, we will see a lot more migration, out migration. If a livelihood cannot be built, if children cannot be sent to school, if health bills cannot be paid, you know, people will migrate out of these areas and they will move into cities where they will have a much stronger voice that they generally don't have in rural, rural areas. And I think once we see more of these movements, um, hopefully governments and other institutions will come to the realization that they have to do more to protect these existing rural livelihoods. I think it will, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure these movements will happen. Of course, there could be yet other events, you know, that um, will be considered yet more important than these movements and these deprivations. But certainly they will increase. I think, as you say, we focus quite a lot on governance issues in the book and um, the contestations around water and food across. And a lot of these governance mechanisms are very political, are very contested, and they have actually led to quite a lot of exclusions of very poor and marginalized people. So while you try to formalize land and water rights, you could often uh, ignore invisible producers of water and food invisible users and you know you look at this land and you think oh it's unproductive but actually there are pastoralists there uh, there are women farmers there and if you ignore their needs you're going to really lead there's going to be more and more injustices taking place and more and more deprivation and we've often found and we've really found it quite problematic that there are so many silos around mm. land food and water governance and they don't really come together so we've really made a case uh, for bringing policies and programs together. There's been quite a lot of talk of this nexus. I mm. mean, it exists on the ground, but in practice, it's very, very difficult to implement. Um, and I think for me, the nexus should be around human rights, around bringing the rights to water, food together. Some could say we're being a bit utopian here, but sometimes, you know, ideas are put forward and they're dismissed as utopian. But a decade or two later, they're quite normal. So I think we really have to think bold and big um, and make a case for having, you know, uh, an expansive, a more expansive understanding of the human right to water for food and livelihoods, mm -hmm. because that's the only way we can, you know, secure healthy and productive lives for all, um, especially given the challenges that we have today. Mm -hmm. So you've you've talked about the uh, the invisibility of some of these actors, some of these um, claimers of rights. Um, you also note in the book that water debates have been less political than food debates, and you talk about food sovereignty and how important that has been to push for some rights in the food um, domain to be um, to be claimed. So why do you think water has been less political, given all that you've said and how clearly political the issue is? Why has taken so long for you know these claims to be put forward is it connected to the invisibility of um, of some of the actors in in relation to water um, I think 
yeah, there are many aspects um, and many reasons. I mean, one certainly is, you know, that water exists in many different forms. So you have, for example, a lot of the water is underground. Uh, nowadays, you know, from a food production perspective, 40% of the food um, that is irrigated, um, and again, irrigation alone accounts for 40% of the food that we consume, is actually underground. So you don't really see it. So you have to actually drill a well, right? And you might be out there using water and actually no one knows how much is underground. So there is, it's, it's very complex. So we are using groundwater, we use surface water, we use rainwater. So it's, it's a very complex intermix and the hydrology um, is you know, generally not well understood by policymakers and governments. The hydrology is only well understood when we have a big river that flows across the border. And everyone understands um, that there are issues and then there is a lot of interest in controlling that water. And often the interest is to keep as much water inside a national boundary, which obviously makes no sense from a hydrological point of view. Um, so the fact, you know, that it's not just one single source and also it's not just one single user. So the water governance system is extremely fragmented. So, for example, if I'm a city and I want to treat, you know, the, all the sewage that's coming out from whatever, the 20 million households in my city, you know, I usually talk to the Ministry of Construction. I don't go and talk to the Ministry of Water. I don't talk to the Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, then you have wetlands that are getting drained, maybe to build more, <laughs> more houses for you know people migrating to cities. So you have to deal with the Ministry of Environment, if at all, and that's so it's yet another you know it's another uh, actor in this whole fragmented space. And then if you talk about irrigation, which uses most of the water that's withdrawn uh, for human purposes, you often have to talk to the Minister of Agriculture and on it goes. Fisheries is often a separate ministry. Livestock is yet another ministry. Forestry is another ministry. So they actually don't necessarily talk to each other. So the situation is so fragmented that no one has the overview of what's going on um, and that just, you know, the complexity contributes to the situation that it's it's more difficult to make it political. And as Lila said, it's fluid. It comes and goes. There's a water cycle. I mean, so irrigation, you know, evapotranspires the water, but it goes up and it rains down. And some sometimes in a different continent, sometimes in, you know, in a different country. So, you know, there, there's recent evidence that the Brazilian rainforest, for example, which is obviously one of the most you know important biodiversity obviously areas in the world but also water generation area so the water goes up it's a river in the sky and it rains down among others in southern brazil so they've now they start to experience some droughts there you know and but the policymakers even inside brazil might not necessarily agree that this is happening and that they might now have a drought because they might be more deforestation in their own country um, I, I see this all the time. Vietnam has built dams on their own tributaries to the Mekong. And then they notice that their country shrinks because the Mekong Delta is affected by the dams they've built in their own country and they're losing land. It's this one policymaker that has agreed to the dam construction that traps all the sediments that now don't go into the Delta in the own country and then might lament the fact that, oh, we are losing land area. So the complexity, I think, is, is a key challenge and the fragmentation across all of these ministries and actors. So, and um, 
to an extent, uh, given what you've just said and the extent of uh, fragmentation, institutional fragmentation of, of, of this domain, then what does policy coherence mean in this context? Because we know that uh, there are these uh, these silos, right? So how can they be addressed? What would policy coherence? What sort of policy coherence uh, could we envisage that uh, is able to address these silos? Address, make the connections between uh, uh, the relevant uh, um, the relevant governance institutions. Well, I guess you know it's. The hope would be that different ministries and sectors would start talking more with each other. And this is a challenge across the board in development. It's not just for water. But it just sound, for us, it was so incredible because it seems so obvious that without water, you couldn't have food. But still, they don't talk to each other. So we hope the book could be a start of this kind of conversation across the board from local and even global processes, you know, um, do not connect. And for that, that also we found extraordinary. And uh, the fact that, you know, now you do have this World Committee for Food Security that has commissioned different reports to look at linkages between food and water, I think is a very good, uh, or food and other aspects, and one of them was water. I think that was a a, a good step. And, you know, that, that has pushed states and representatives to think about these interlinkages. In terms of the political issues, I mean, I think, you know, let me just say that water is deeply political, water is contested. But the lens that has been used to look at water traditionally was very engineering and economics dominated. And it's only maybe in the last 10 to 15 years that you have much more social science perspectives on water, looking at questions of rights, knowledge politics, uh, power, etc. And I think that's really important. But and the resistance also to looking at water as a human right also could be because, you know, we're talking about um, the ones who lack water and food are very marginalized people who don't have a voice. And so their claims can easily be ignored, too. Um, and that's why, you know, they're very invisible. But the water justice movement has focused on questions of privatization and large dams. It's been very, very vocal. But you don't have the equivalent of like a peasant movement, like you have the Viva Campesina movement with food. You just don't have that kind of global solidarity. It's small NGOs working together on some of these issues. And it would be great if, you know, there could be more an international water justice movement around, you know, the right to to water or the right to water for livelihoods. But are there country contexts where there's been more progress? In the book, you talk, for example, about Bolivia being quite progressive in recognizing uh, the right to water and connecting it to the right to food, right? Can you tell us yes, a little bit about that? Yes, there are several countries that have, that have been progressive. So Bolivia, Ecuador, South Africa, several sub- countries in Africa, so Zimbabwe, Kenya, they've made the linkages far more than other countries. And I think, you know, in the global north, one can look to some of those countries to look at examples. But of course, you know, just to have a constitutional right to water doesn't mean you're suddenly going to get water or you're going to get food. But at least you can, it, that, that means it's justiciable. You can go to court, you can make a claim. And several of these governments recognize these rights, but then violate them also. Mm-hmm. So you can have a mining company somewhere uh, that will violate the right of indigenous people uh, 
to their water, pollute the water resources. So you have all these contradictions taking place. But still, you know, rights are only realized through struggle and mobilization. And having that constitutional right does make a huge difference. Hmm. And maybe also so in terms of, you know, uh, who has real, I mean, the recognition and trying to address this fragmentation of water, you know, at the UN level, they have started UN Water. Um, a couple of years ago, where they're trying to have representatives of all the UN organizations that deal with water actually come together and you know, develop a joint agenda. I think it has been very challenging, um, but they're at least trying, you know, because you have WHO, you have UNICEF, you have UNESCO. So they're all linking in one way or another to water. And of course, FAO, again, like the steward of um, for agriculture, where water is the largest user uh, across all of the sectors. So they're trying to come together. You know, it's just, I think, one indicator to show that there is a recognition that something has to be done. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we see globally. Uh, but it's fair to say that UN yeah. water is, is not as high profile as, let's say, no. the FAO or the World yeah. Committee mm. for Food Security. Because mm. there you really have high profile UN agencies. And I guess because it's so fragmented and you have water addressed by UNICEF, WHO, the joint monitoring program mm. everywhere, you don't have it all come together um, in that high profile way. So what's next for this research and what's next for the sort of um, advocacy, um, the, uh, the activism that underpins uh, this book? Where do you see it going? Well, we'd like some more dialogues bringing together the different stakeholders because, you know, this is such a fragmented field. So really getting people to talk to each other about these linkages and connections would be great. We would also welcome the uh, special rapporteurs on water, food, and water and sanitation, food and health to come together and explore the synergies more. I mean, the Human Rights Council, it would be great. We tried to do some of it uh, earlier, but, you know, we, it was a bit difficult. But maybe the time is more ripe to bring these people together and to, to, to really explore the synergies and linkages mm -hmm. and also the violations and what one, how can one can address them. Yeah, I think the book really pointed to a series of entry points, interventions to reduce inequity in access to water and food. And I think we hope, you know, with this podcast, with other um, outreach activities that we can get some of the players who can maybe help affect uh, some of those entry points, such as the better realization of a, a right to water for food, um, recognition of, you know, traditional water rights for women and men, and understanding that there should be a focus, a more pro-poor um, and a more focus on marginalized um, areas and populations and to maybe really show what the economic benefits, long-term sustainability benefits um, of such interventions are. I think there is still a lack of understanding and there is still a complacency uh, thinking that business as usual will still kind of fly. I think going forward it will not fly and we will see, as I said, you know, if things fall apart, people will be on the move. Uh, they have always done that. Um, you know, that's what people do. And I think at the end of the day, this realization might only come when we see a lot more people on the move. 
but we hope that so that the readers of the book and the other materials will take some actions before it comes to that. I think it's also about holding powerful actors to account. So it's not just, I think what we found in when doing the research for the book is we can't just focus on states, but there are very powerful actors, huge corporations, huge players that are now, they have a lot of convening power around decision-making in water and food. And naming and shaming them, holding them to account is also an arena of activism. And it's really important. A lot of people are doing that already, but it needs to be, much more needs to be done in that regard. Thank you very much. This was a very, very insightful conversation. And for me personally, I think this is a key resource for our teaching program on food and development at, at IDS, which uh, I'm definitely going to add to my reading list. But I think there's also an important message of working across uh, thematic areas, right, and speaking more to one another and learning from the field, seeing how rea in reality on the ground these things are connected. So we should, uh, we should be more modest and be learning more from, um, from the real life and, uh, and, and make that reflect our, our ways of doing research. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have feedback and suggestions for upcoming episodes, we'd love to hear from you please email us at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.